When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Holdout was released in 1980 and is Jackson Brown's sixth full-length album. It wasn't well-received by critics, but it reached number one on the Billboard charts. It went platinum that year and went multi-platinum in 2001. I'll keep the Rolling Stone review section on this one pretty tight because our guest is the guy who wrote that review back in 1980. In addition to writing for Rolling Stone, Kit Rackless held top posts at The Village Voice, LA Weekly, LA Times, and many more and currently does so for California Sunday Magazine. As I've made these Rolling Stone reviews a through line through the podcast, I was really excited to have Kit on here. I think I've said this in a previous episode, but I think a project like this that celebrates an artist is only worthwhile if it's also honest across the board. I think Kit's Rolling Stone review and the conversation that follows embody that in a way that reinforces the larger project of celebrating this artist. I've come to love Holdout more and more over the last week as I've listened to it in preparation for this episode, but Holdout does exist in a world alongside Late for the Sky and Running on Empty, and a critic's job is to parse the culture and sort of see where an album fits in within the larger context of the culture and the artist who made the record. And in my opinion, Kit does that honestly. Here is Kit Rackless on Holdout. Everything that's right and everything that's wrong about Holdout can be found in its climax. The spoken confession at the end of the last cut, Hold On, Hold Out. Eight minutes long, Hold On, Hold Out is the LP's anthem, its farewell address and would-be summation. With technicolor clarity, the drive of the drums, the zing of the string synthesizer, and the shoulders thrust back moment of the piano jump out at you, big and bright and basic. So the drama is real when the instruments drop back and Brown stops singing and starts speaking. The singer is speaking directly to the woman he's been falling in love with throughout the LP. You can sense that he's awkwardly trying to breach the gulf between them. And when he hitches up his pants and says, See? I always figured I was going to meet somebody here. You know that Los Angeles' coolest, smartest urban cowboy is just as vulnerable and ridiculous as you and I. Brown, a romantic to the end, makes such a long-shot faith seem not only possible, but necessary. Holdout is probably the weakest album he's ever made, an album on which all of the big decisions are carefully considered, but many of the small ones backfire. There's not an acoustic guitar to be found. Even the curling, faraway cry of David Lindley's lap guitars, which, as much as anything have characterized Brown's records, has nearly vanished. Despite its rock and roll accomplishments, however, what's missing from Holdout is much larger. Humor, humility, detail, lightness of touch. Brown has been Hollywood Rock's moral conscience and intellectual spokesman for so long and has performed his duties so completely that it's probably taken something out of him. And so I'm skipping over a little bit of the review here, but he ends with, Unfortunately, the old Jackson Brown can rarely be found on Holdout so we'll have to give the new one a chance. 
This episode was recorded before I launched, and I knew going in that it would be sort of a pivot point for the podcast. I've said multiple times in this space how much I love those first five albums. There are also albums that come after that that I absolutely love, and I can't wait to talk about them. I'm going to be pretty open and honest about the fact that Jackson Brown's albums in the 80s are the ones I'm least familiar with. By the time I'm Alive and Looking East come out in the 90s, I'm a kid and I'm hearing them in my house in a very organic way. And so in the way that I discovered those first five albums in my 20s and fell in love with them, the four albums that came out in the 80s are kind of a thing I still get to go find. And that's not to say that I haven't listened to them, because I definitely have. The distinction I'm trying to make is that I could tell you the track listing of all the first five albums without even thinking twice about it, and I can't do that with these albums. And my approach, and it's fortunate that my background is in journalism, my approach going into these albums is going to be to talk to people who know more than me about them. And honestly, I'm super excited to listen to them more extensively than I really ever have before. And it honestly gets pretty topical and political later in this decade. And I was a kid at that time, and it's going to be a cool thing for me to explore through Jackson Brown's music. You should change over time, and he did change over time. And the thing is, the culture is allowed to respond however they respond. And a media critic like Kit Rackless, his job is to have his finger on the pulse of that culture and That's what he's doing in this review. There's value in that. There really is. And there's also value in Jackson Brown meandering through everything that he does over his full discography. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. So here's my conversation with Kit Rackless. Um, I start off by asking him whether he remembers writing that Rolling Stone review in 1980. Yeah, I do remember it. Um, I had been writing about rock and roll and American vernacular music since the fall of 1970. Um and had been writing full-time about um, music almost since the moment I graduated from college in 1975. And in, the, in February of 19, and was freelancing for places like Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, Cream Magazine, Crawdaddy, and so forth. Um, and in early 1977, became the music editor of the Boston Phoenix which at the time was generally considered one of the three or four best and most important pop music sections in the country, which would also include the Rolling Stone, um, the Village Voice, and Cream. And um, as editor, I was also overseeing classical music coverage and jazz coverage um, as well as popular music coverage. But I continued to freelance, and um, an old friend and in many ways a mentor of mine was the music editor of Rolling Stone named Paul Nelson. Um, And Paul, who was a great, great champion of Jackson Brown's, among other things, he was an early, early champion of Bob Dylan's and had known Dylan all the way back in Minneapolis. 
um, Assign Me the Holdout album. And as in almost always the case, um, neither one of us had heard, of, heard it before he assigned it to me. Um, and, um, and I remember calling Paul and after listening to it and saying, I don't think this is a very good record. And he, he also felt the same way. Um, but I wanted him to get the heads up that I would be most likely writing a critical review. Um, and he by no means discouraged me. You know, he was neutral. His, you know, his job as editor was, to assign it to someone who he thought certainly you know, came in with an open mind but was deeply sympathetic to Jackson Brown. But after that, my opinions were mine and there was no house opinion um, about uh, Jackson Brown at Rolling Stone. Um, that, was not, that would not always be true later on in the history of Rolling Stone about certain artists, but it certainly did not hold to, Rolling, to Jackson Brown or Rolling Stone then. And so um, I remember, you know, listening to the record a lot um, in the way I listened to it, you know, records that I was reviewing in those days was that I would listen to it while I was doing other things. I would listen to it while doing nothing else but listening to it. I would take lots of notes um, and only, you know, in retrospect, only a few years later and certainly now with the hindsight of 30 plus years I think it's fair to say, and I say this with, you know, no joy, but, you know, re regret, the previous records he made are by no means perfect, but very few people make perfect records any more than they write perfect novels or perfect plays or perfect movies. But he had made five really good, and at least in one or two cases, I think truly superb records um, in a row. Um, and... That's, you know, a pretty extraordinary run. You know, five very yeah. good records in a row is not the norm for most pop musicians. We certainly can point to any number of runs like it, but it's more the exception, by far more the exception than the rule. Definitely. Uh, and to come out to come out with your five first albums as a solo artist like that. And it's not like the fifth of those five was, I would say, pretty much the biggest one right commercially he's coming off of running on empty that's right at least in in, in hindsight it feels the biggest yeah that's right and, and running on empty was a i think quite a special record which is that he made a live album but treated it as a kind of documentary film and so he recorded songs um in various what's the right word, Lo locales that were not on stage. You know, there was, I believe, one song from backstage. There's a song from his hotel room. He tried to capture what life on the road was like. Um, and It's like a, a concept album about life on the road that's actually made on the road and in all those places. It's like takes it to its most authentic, like, end point. Yeah, and I think it's an underrated, truly underrated record in many ways. And it also, and I think this is the interesting contrast to, uh, you know, to Holdout, which is that um, it that record feels loose. That record feels, has energy to it. That record feels someone relaxing. And um, this record um, you know, it suffers from something quite different, which is, um, and it, which is his desire to make a statement with a capital S or to create art with a capital A. And again, you know, we can point to exceptions, but most pop musicians are at their best when they're not trying to create art with a capital A. Um, and 
um, in this record, I think, suffers from the constrictions when an artist self-consciously tries to do that. Yeah. I, I, and I, so I want to, after this, get into the actual songs on the record. But thinking about, so you sit down to write that review and listen to it for the first time. Was Do you remember if there was a certain kind of like energy or expectation about like, oh, what's Jackson Brown going to do next? Like, was it anticipated or was it just, here's his next record, time to review it? Like where? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, there were always critics who, you know, did, you know, who, and some very major critics who did not hold Jackson Brown in particularly high regard. I'm thinking of Bob Criscow, the music editor of The Village Voice and the author of the Paz and Jop Consumer Guide, um, or maybe it was just called The Consumer Guide. Greel Marcus, um, another major critic at the time, I think never thought highly of Jackson Brown. I'm guessing, though I can't remember exactly, that, um, that Jackson Brown would not have been to Lester Banks' taste. But on the other hand, people like Paul Nelson and Dave Marsh were very, very much champions of Brown in many ways, Paul more than anybody else. And in those days... Um, critics had a much stronger relationship to, I think, shaping uh, taste than, well, there's no question, they had a much stronger effect on sort of shaping taste and perception than they do now. But yes, there was a lot of anticipation. Um, uh, and, you know, five records in a row, he was considered a major, certainly a major artist, certainly a, an, an important songwriter, and very much, you know, um, I, I think it's perhaps, again, not an overstatement to say, you know, the most important songwriter in Southern California at the time um, or coming merging out of the Southern California rock rock world, folk world, however, singer-songwriter world, however we want to define it. I, um, and so, yes, there was a great deal of anticipation. And I think there was, um, with very few exceptions, I think there there was almost universal disappointment um, in this record. And and I think you even mentioned in your review that he was about to go on the, the biggest tour of his career. That's all coming on the heels of running on empty, right? That's coming on the heels of that. Absolutely, success. yeah. And and it's, you know, this happens to lots of musicians and pop musicians and lots of artists. Jackson Brown was a huge star at the time. And... Um, uh, and you know, and could command you know fifteen, eighteen thousand seat halls is my memory. Um, I find so so in in getting into the actual record, it's it's something that I noticed about Jackson Brown once I started thinking about this record is the power of the sort of the the first track on each album, like Jamaica Say You Will, Take It Easy, Late for the Sky. The fuse on the Pretender um, and Run It On Empty. Obviously, these songs all sort of like announce their album, and they uh, like like I'm ready to go. And I, I can't really overstate how much Disco Apocalypse is like doesn't stack up with those others. It actually, and I'm not of that time period. I was I was born a couple years later, and so I don't. It doesn't entirely sound like disco to me, but it's like referencing it in some way, and it base. It, it's a confusing way to start an album for me. And if you have any education for me on that front, I would. Um, I, I don't have any education for you, but I agree with you. And I remember at the time feeling, and when I listened to it again more recently, um, I think what it's trying to say is confused. And he took a kind of easy idea and didn't consider it very close. Down the side streets in the avenue, 
dirty sisters walking two by two. Their dresses and their shoes are new, but their hearts are weary. After that song, like that song leaves me like, okay, I don't know what Debbie I'm in for here. I I kind of hear Holdout and That Girl Could Sing and Boulevard as like not quite as great songs that you still could have found on like Pretender or something. Yeah, and I um, I think that of those three songs that you mentioned, the one that absolutely could fit onto um, another Jackson Brown album and would be a good song on another Jackson Brown record is That Girl Could Sing. And it's the one that feels the most personal, um, the one that feels what's the right word that taps into one of his strengths, which is his romanticism. And, um, and at his best, you know, and, and at his best, his romanticism is self-questioning. Um, he's a romantic who questions his own romanticism. And, um, and that song, um, absolutely fits into that and could fit into, you know, any number of previous Jackson Brown songs. Talk about think something you just described put puts this really well it's it's a lot of uncertainty there's I've, I've found that in listening to this there's a lot of feeling a certain way and contemplating why you should feel that way and basically leaving you with no definitive answer but uh taking taking you on a ride in the process or taking you along on his ride you know i think there's something else that you know perhaps we should talk about which is the sound of this record um which is one of the things that Brown had developed really starting on album two uh, for every man um, is, and it really comes, I think, you know, it reaches its zenith in, 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 in the third album, is his relationship with David Lindley. And whether it's Lindley playing laptop guitar or um, fiddle or a whole variety of instruments, um, or electric guitar. I mean, Lindley is an extraordinary musician with a very distinctive sound. Um, you know, it's idiosyncratic, and I mean that in the best possible sense, um, which is that it is, you know, utterly his own. Um, and that's not often true with lots of, you know, there are lots of very good musicians who don't sound utterly like themselves, but David Lindley sounds utterly like himself. And yeah, you could tell you could tell he was that David Lindley was allowed to be David Lindley on those albums, like, and, and and in certain moments truly define you know defines the song. I mean, I think you know the coda, his coda to "For a Dancer" is you know extraordinarily moving, and t- you know, and um, and I think that's one of Jackson Brown's two or three greatest songs, and it's a song that continues to move me and continues to mean a lot to me um and um and 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 core to that song um is that partnership between you know jackson brown trying to explore you know all of his feelings about the death of a friend and death itself um and strikingly avoiding cliche um and this kind of beautiful epic melancholy um, sound that David Lindley gets that yet at the same time 
makes you feel hopeful and propels you forward. It's an extraordinary mix of sadness and joy in his playing on that record. And there's nothing, it's rare for anything to achieve that height, but you don't have that same sense of partnership on this record. Instead, you, you feel a lot of kind of grand, big sounds on this record, but it's, um, again, it's like the words, they're lo- they've lost their distinctiveness, and it's to the record's great, great detriment, I think. Yeah, you kind of feel like, oh, here's, you, I can hear a David Lindley part here, but on those el- other albums, it's like he's sort of almost always there. Yeah. He, if he's gone for a little bit, he's back, and he's whether he's doing something really bold and powerful and, and that feels deliberately up front, or whether he's just weaving something in the background, he's always there, and in this one... Yeah, I think you do a good job in your review of of describing that. You know, I think, you know, uh, uh, that the reason this record is worth, maybe worth this conversation, but worth having, you know, looking at closely is that, um, you know, lots, lots of us, you know, you know, you know, write something with great ambition and it misses, you know, it misses the mark or paints a big painting and it, you know, with with huge ambition and it misses the mark or a play or a movie. Um, You know, I can't think of a single artist um, who hasn't failed and failure actually is, you know, in self-doubt and all of that is part of, part of the deal. It's part of the process. Um, yeah, and I think there was great ambition on this record. Yeah, it's it's really the the norm, right? Yeah, like I've I've interviewed a lot of musicians, and um, if anytime there's something new that's coming out, they're talking about how they're better than they were before. They understand songwriting better than they were before, or they understand. Uh, it's it's a it's a lot of talk about like improvement and maturity with age, but then it's like, well, we all look back on like scroll down through someone's like Spotify discography or something, and you basically scroll to the bottom to their first handful of records almost always if they've been around for decades. Okay, and we're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Kit to talk to Pat Francis, who is someone I met online after a recent interview I did. And Holdout is his favorite Jackson Brown album. And he's not the first person I talked to this week who absolutely loves Holdout. And I think I want to really give voice to someone who has a special connection with this album. So I'm having Pat on to talk briefly about why this album matters to him. Pat, what is it that you love about this album or why why is this your favorite Jackson Brown album? Uh, well, hello, Justin. Thanks for having me on the show. This was the first Jackson Brown album that I ever bought. Uh, I would have been in uh, 10th grade in high school and I heard the song Boulevard on the radio and that opening guitar just jumped out at me and I loved everything about that song. So I immediately went and purchased this album. I didn't buy a 45. I had to hear this whole entire thing. Down on the boulevard, they take it hard. They look at life with such disregard. I think that's a perfect sort of supplemental conversation for us to have about Holdout is or there's value in a review of an album. 
but the power of like hearing an artist for the first time or connecting with something for the first time, like kind of coincidentally, the, the pretender interview I did, I talked to my dad and that the pretender was the first Jackson Brown album he got into oh, nice. the running on empty interview I did is with Holly Gleason. And that album was the one that she came to Jackson Brown with the power of finding something for the first time like that. It's sort of like, there's a personal meaning to that, you know? Yeah. I find a lot of times that my favorite album by a band or artist is the first one that I've ever, that I ever purchased. Uh, I think it has as much to do with the quality of the music as it does with the like relationship and the time period. Like you, you, I'm sure you hear Boulevard and you can put yourself back in where you were at the time. Oh, definitely. And I, um, and then that girl could sing. I love that song. So, I mean, I love all, there's only seven songs on this album. I love every single song on this album. And again, this is Jackson's first album of the eighties. And this kind of sets the tone for the next couple. He, he kind of stays in this, this type of sound, which is, uh, which is what all the artists were doing in the eighties. They all went for this, uh, you know, a little bit sideways thing that they don't normally do. And then they come back. And I really think he needed to do this. And I mean, it paid off chart wise because this is his only number one album. I know. So someone liked it. No, I, I mean, and it went platinum and then went multi-platinum in 2001, which if so, if it goes multi-platinum in 2001, it means it continued to have resonance too. I, th- I think that like, it's interesting to talk about that in the context of this review, because like you said, he made... F- five albums that had a certain kind of feel to them. It had a certain kind of like Southern California singer songwriter feel to them. And then you enter into the eighties and it sounds different. It is a different thing. I think it's understandable for a uh, set of listeners and critics to like, maybe be like, well, what is this? And, and I think for a lot of those artists into the eighties, like there are bands like the Rolling Stones and, and a bunch of bands like that, like, I think you kind of get the you kind of get the unique benefit of like being introduced to Jackson Brown with that sound. Like yeah. there's probably some there's something to that. Musically and maybe production wise it's different from his first handful of albums, but lyrically the guy is always amazing. The lyrics are incredible. I have this in the conversation that I have about um I'm alive and looking east which I recorded yesterday and will come out in a few weeks. That was kind of what we talked about was like take all these songs and and remove the production from them and strip them down to their bare parts, which Jackson Brown beautifully did on a set of tours in the, in the two thousands, just him and acoustic guitars and pianos. And you see that like the DNA of them is, is always going to kind of be worth your time. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the song that closes out uh, the album, hold on, hold out, which is, you know, eight minutes long. There's like a, there's like a, a break towards the end where he's, not really singing, he's just talking. Uh, starts with, you're a holdout, well, I'm a holdout too. I, I just love that. You're a holdout. But I'm a holdout too. I have this album uh, autographed and a vinyl copy and hanging on my wall in my office. I mean, that's how much this album means to me. And I, I, I had awesome. to seek out Jackson Brown and get him to sign this album because it's just a, it's just a killer for me. It's just the one I always go back to. The other albums are great too, but this this is just the one for me. Pat and I are talking on Wednesday morning, and I'm going to finish editing the episode right after this and post it. 
Um, so that's the reason this is just kind of a brief little interlude, but I, it's a really good reminder, especially as I edit this interview that is very, uh, critics approach to talking about an album which as i said like i'm a i've i'm a music writer myself i've i see value in this like i see value in doing that and i think kit has a really honest kit rackless who's the, who's my guest did a good job in his review and takes a real honest approach he's not just like a uh like blogger these days just coming in to tear something down. He loves Jackson Brown. He responded to this album in the moment with the context of the previous five albums that came. I think it's a real honest conversation, but I think that that would have been missing something if, if we didn't have a voice like yours in this to like talk about the sort of fan experience of coming, of of finding something you love and then having it last your whole life. All right, Pat, thank you so much. Tell us um, where people could follow you or find you or listen to you. Well, I'm the host of the Rock Solid podcast, which we are going into our 10th year. We've had uh, in-studio guests such as Melissa Etheridge and Elliot Easton and the Bangles and the Zombies and David Wilde. And I could just go on and on and on because we've had we've been so blessed with having so many in-studio guests. But you can just go to rocksolidpodcast.com. And you can find links to all the episodes and anything you need to know about the show or who's been on. And I thank you, Justin, for allowing me to share a little bit of my uh, love for the Holdout album. Take care, Matt. You were the perfect voice for this one moment, and then as the tools used to make music and the culture shifts and everything into the eighties, uh, a different set of people are the people who should be doing that now. And that the eighties has those people, right? And you, so it's, and, and as an artist, you, you know, particularly a pop artist, you have a difficult time adjusting. Do you hold on to what you always did in the past? Do you try to adjust to this new sound that is coming in? Um, do you, um, do you experiment and your audience is upset that you experiment it's a very, very complicated, um, you know, set of decisions and relationships that you have to work out, and it's very hard to navigate. Um, um, and I think that's one of many reasons why, pop, you know, that why many pop musicians, you know, have difficult, you know, have difficulty after that first that first burst. Um, what what I find interesting about it is you have Holdout and Lawyers in Love, and right at that same period, he does essentially with the same sound and everything. Uh, somebody's baby, which goes on fast times at Ridgemont High, and I think is like an excellent pop song. Mm-hmm, it it mm-hmm. straight up is a pop song. Yeah, no, I agree. I actually, I've always liked that song. You know, I think one of the things I'm guessing is that he especially felt the weight of being, you know, an important songwriter. That his songs had to have. What's the right word? Not necessarily gravitas. That's not the right word. But they had, you know, um, they 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 needed to carry weight and meaning, and um, not just giving you a your string of pop hits. It's like, and you know, and somebody's baby is, as you said, is a really good pop song. And there's not only nothing wrong with a really good pop song. A pop song gives all sorts of kinds of pleasure. Um, that sometimes 
meaningful, much greater pleasure and actually hold much greater meaning than a song that's trying to be meaningful and, you know, and, and important and influential or whatever, you know, or just, or to, that's trying to take on life's big questions almost always, not, you know, there are exceptions. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, I think, you know, for a dancer is one of them, but, you know, many of the songs that try to take on "Quote unquote," life's big questions almost always sink under their own weight. I, I think that all makes total sense, and um, is a good segue to flipping the record over and looking at some of those songs. Mostly, I want to talk about "Hold On, Hold Out" because it's the last song on this record, but it's the way you lead the review. and And I think um, so. I want to talk first about "Of Missing Persons" and "Call It Alone" just briefly, and then we'll get to "Hold On, Hold Out" because I think talking about the you being faced with the idea of writing this critical review i almost think call it alone it's like that that melody does move me some and feels a little bit clean and in it's like sonically interesting in the morning when i close my eyes you were sleeping in paradise and i think of missing persons um you know i know you know, that it's a deeply personal song um, to Jackson Brown because it's about the death of Lowell George, the musician Lowell George, and and, um, and it's addressed, um, um, as I understand it, to Lowell George's then very, very young daughter who's grown up to become a singer um, and is now a singer and a very good singer. But it, but it feels, it feels overly earnest. And... And that's an interesting question about Jackson Brown, which is that you could say that about any number of his previous songs and in his previous records that there was a kind of earnestness. His you know his songs are not filled with irony. There um, there's almost no sarcasm. Um, there's relatively little humor, but there there is some humor in in, in his previous songs. But at his best, that earnestness. Um, had a kind of appeal that he was willing to take on um, subjects straight on and he had a kind of, at his best, an eloquence to it. Your father was a rounder He played that rock and roll A leaper and a bounder Down to his gypsy soul you know, one of the things I was thinking about in advance of our conversation, which is um, that among his generation of songwriters, um, that one of the things that's striking about Jackson Brown is that you don't hear the direct influence of Bob Dylan on his songwriting. It's not to say that Jackson Brown did not listen to Bob Dylan, but Brown... Um, is an exception to that generation, which is that you don't hear Dylan's phrasing, you don't hear Dylan's um, a lyrical style, um, his Dylan's love for aphorism. You rarely hear in Brown his calling on um, the long and deep, um, and in my mind, you know, extraordinarily beautiful. Um, you know, traditions of American vernacular music. You don't hear 
you know, Appalachian string music. You don't listen to hear country blues. You don't listen to hear bluegrass or country and western. Not in the songwriting, not in the inflection of his voice. All of which, you know, Dylan absorbs and um, and reuses um, in many cases quite literally, whether it's melody or or um, or um, or word choices. You don't hear that in Brown. I mean, Brown was never marked the way. John Prine was, Loudon Wainwright was, Bruce Springsteen was, as a quote-unquote new Dylan. Um, all of the, you know, each of those musicians I just named escaped that title, um, but many others didn't. Um, but Brown never was called that or identified that, and that says something both about his originality and his ability to sort of, to kind of withstand the Dylan influence. But again, Brown's great strength um, is, you know, is his, you know, ability um, and its best and extraordinary ability to take things head on and write about them with eloquence. And that's no small thing. Um, but on this, but on this record, he doesn't do it. If you were to write this review now, this is a review being written that's a little bit it, it's a it's a critical review, like you said. And the reason it's interesting for me to talk about this is all the all of the uh, albums I've done so far in this series have been the, in those first five, and so this is the first time I'm talking in predominantly critical terms about about the songs. And I and I mean we have there have been certain moments in some of the albums that we've spoken that way, and I think this whole series would be worthless if all it did was shower praise and find ways to praise every single thing. There'd be no need for it. But it's still a critical review for Rolling Stone at the time about an artist you appreciate and how, like, when you read it now, this many years later, and have this kind of conversation about it, how, how do you feel about it now looking back? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I was aware that I was writing, you know, a highly critical review of a highly regarded musician of the time. And... Um, was unaware of what other people thought about it. I'm pretty sure I got an advanced copy of it, so I was, you know, I was writing it as I should have in a kind of vacuum, being unaware of what the critical reception would be. But I was conscious that um, that it would be, and this was the lead review, and that it would be that the lead review of Rolling Stone was going to be highly critical of of someone who at the time was considered by Rolling Stone and many others a major, major artist. He had already been on the cover of Rolling Stone at least once. And, um, you know, I, I was 28 at the time, if my memory is right. And I think probably um, that, that there was a kind, there was probably, there, there was more than just disappointment. There was a kind of, Jackson Brown has failed us, um, I think, to my review. Um, And that's the only part that I think that I would change, which is, you know, that I still think for all the reasons we've talked, it is it's a record that fails. Um, And so in that sense, I think it, you know, it remains accurate. And I'm you know, and, and I've re-listened to this record and my judgment of it does not change 30 plus years later. But I think that precisely because I am older, um, there would be you know, the sense of, oh, he failed us would, would you, you know, no, I no longer feel that. And there's a long tradition and there was a long tradition, you know, in that during that period in, in where, you know, critics, Lester Bangs was quite brilliant at this of, you know, a 
of, of, you know, both championing records, but also eviscerating records. And, you know, and I think one of the values of critics, there are many, many values, you know, one is to open up, you know, music it is to introduce new music, it is to explore and articulate um, why, you know, why music works and puts it in, you know, social and political and cultural context. Um, you know, the value of critics is, is to incite um, and trigger a conversation about a piece of about a piece of art um, and or art in general or culture in general. But I think the I'm repeating myself, but the sense that Brown had somehow failed us, I think, which I think is, has a bit in this um, um, in my review, I, that part, I think I would I would change, but I wouldn't change my judgment. Um, so how how many years younger were you than than Lester Bangs and Paul Nelson and that? Oh, that's uh, sort a of foundational. Good, group that's of a good, about. good question. I sort of think of myself as, um, or that period of I was kind of rock. I belonged to kind of rock critic generation one point five, which is um, Paul was by was was older than everybody, and then almost um, born in nineteen thirty thirty seven or thirty eight, a couple of years before Bob Dylan, um, and then the next group. Uh, people, um, kind of Greal Marcus, Bob Criscow, John Landau, Ellen Willis, um, I, um, are all, I believe, you know, from 1941 to 1945 or 46. And I think the next group, and I haven't looked up, you could, we could look this up right away about when Lester was born, um, 1947 or 1948 or 49, and that's Lester Bangs and Dave Marsh. And I was born at the end of 1951, so I belong to the next group of, you know, people who are beginning to write about pop music. Um, so I was half a generation roughly later. What a cool time. Notice that that interview ended a little bit abruptly. That was a mini recording glitch on my part. So when you got something like that, the move is to fade in some music. So um, I want to say a huge thank you to Kit Rackless. You can follow him on Twitter at K-I-T-R-A-C-H-L-I-S. And to Pat Francis, who you can follow on Twitter at Pat underscore Francis. I really enjoyed coming at this album from the two distinct directions with them, and I think there's something cool to take away about music with that. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup, and if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash afterthedeluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. Thank you for listening, rating, reviewing, sharing, all that stuff.